Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for joining me on this episode 51 of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest today is Chris Smith, CEO of W.C. Smith Companies in Washington, D.C. The W.C. Smith Companies have been around since 1968 when Chris's father, Bill, founded the firm as a property management firm managing primarily residential and small commercial properties in the district at that time. Interestingly, this is the same year as the Washington riots after Martin Luther King's assassination. So it was a rather challenging time to open a company in Washington, D.C., but Chris's father did it and has since built it to be quite a large and prosperous enterprise, primarily investing in the eastern half of Washington, in southeast and northeast in the city, in primarily residential locations. We have a lengthy conversation about his background growing up in Washington, his father's influence on him, and also how he's built the company to give back to the community in so many ways. His youth employment summer program through the Parklands Project his employment project at Skylands, which is a project he's developing with Gary Rappaport, and culminated with the ARC, T-H-E-A-R-C, which is a spectacular three-building mixed-use nonprofit project he developed in Southeast Washington, which we talk about at length. So I hope you enjoy this far-reaching conversation with Chris Smith. Without further ado, here it is. Thank you. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for joining me for Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Look forward to the conversation. Great. Could you describe your role at W.C. Smith and your focus day-to-day currently? My title is CEO, but my to describe my role is kind of the guy who deals with everything that falls between the cracks. And so my day, I have no two days alike. But I, it makes for interesting work, and, and I've enjoyed every day since June of 1974. That's interesting. So are you more of the strategy guy for the, for the firm? Are you looking at the, at the direction over the horizon type of thing, or are you looking at day-to-day stuff as well? Really both. And to me, they go hand in hand. But I think of myself as one of the strategists here. We have a fairly long tenure amongst our, our team. So we have a number of people here that have a good history of the company, good history of, of Washington, D.C., and, and that all influences, I think, our strategy. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into your philosophy a little bit. Obviously, it's deep-grained because of the length of the term of the company and your tenure mm-hmm. along with your family. So let's move back into time and talk about that history a little bit. I understand you're a D.C. native and grew up as a son of your, the company's founder. 
WC Smith Sr. Talk about your childhood. You must have been influenced considerably by your dad's work, even at a young age. How early did you become involved? You know, as soon as I could walk, it seems like I was involved. <laughs> One of my favorite things to do at an early age was, let me sure. talk a little bit for a minute about my dad. So yeah. my dad was in World War II. He got out under the GI Bill. He went to GW, got a degree, finished that up right around 1949, 1950, and then said, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And somebody gave him the heads up that a company called Frank S. Phillips was hiring in their property management division. Mm -hmm. He went over there, met a number of people, including Mr. Phillips. He was hired and went, went to work as a, as a young junior property manager. Was that commercial property, and, residential, uh, both? It was both. Probably weighed more towards residential multifamily mm -hmm. than commercial or retail, but it was it was all back then and uh, wasn't as differentiated as I think has become over the years between like being, you know, commercial office versus a retail group versus a multifamily group. So he worked his way up to became vice president and became in charge of the property management division. And so property management really became ingrained and in, in, within the Smith family. And so my dad, I'll never forget early days, his business card had his home phone number on it. And he didn't mind anyone calling him morning, noon, or night. He wanted to know what the problem was, and he wanted to address it. So he's on call 24-7. He was, much to my mom's chagrin. <laughs> and so on weekends, when boiler went down or there was a hot water problem at a building, and and they weren't able to get a response, or if he wanted to go over and see what the issue was, he'd grab me, I'd jump in the car with him, and we'd head out all over town. There's various, a real little various guy. buildings, yeah, very small. And so I can't differentiate if someone says, so when did you join the business? Well, I got out of college in 74, June, and took one week vacation, and then I went to work. <laughs> but I can't really differentiate when between growing up and being uh, part of the business. When did your dad actually look at you and say, Chris, help me out here. I'm going to, I'm going to put this, you know, this job on you and take it, take it and run with it. Did he ever do that to you when you're in high school or even earlier? I'm curious. No, he never did. In fact, when I went to college, he, he didn't influence what my major was. In fact, my sophomore year of college, I, I got this harebrained idea that I'd be a doctor. So I switched my major for one year. And then by junior year, where were you in school? Came to my Villanova. Oh, in Villanova. Okay. And so went to St. John's High School here in DC. Sure. Then, in fact, it, how I got to Villanova was grew up at Fox Hall Reservoir Road. So very mm -hmm. close to Georgetown University. Sure. And my buddies and I, I probably shouldn't admit this publicly, but we used to go over to Georgetown and, and sneak into McDonough Gym. It's what a fabulous place to play as, sure. you know, in grade school uh -huh. and, and even in the high school. So I thought, geez, I want to go to Georgetown, but I didn't want to live at home and, and walk to school and not be on campus. So somebody told me, well, you know, Villanova is just like Georgetown. And so now I'm sure a lot of Georgetown 
alum might debate <laughs> that and Villanova alum. Anyway, so sight unseen, quite different today than it was back when I went to college. I applied sight unseen, never visited the school, got in and saw it my first day when my parents took me there. What was your first and, impression? Um, oh, I thought it was neat. I thought a lot of similarities. I realized immediately it wasn't in Philadelphia. It was out on the main line. Right, right. And, and of course, you know, I knew Georgetown like the back of my hand, but it was one of those things where, you know, we took my bag, went into the dorm, put it on the bunk, bunk beds back then, mm -hmm. and went outside. And my dad said, well, do you want to have lunch? And I go, no, okay. So we hugged, said goodbye, and that was it. Today... As you probably know, parents go and stay two, three days. Sometimes. The kids visit 15, 20 schools and apply to 10 plus. And so anyway, I'm showing my age, right? Of course. So anyway, same way. anyway, so back to back to growing up in the business, I pretty much every summer would work for the company. We have a facility services group who does a lot of work at the property level that the on-site staff cannot perform. So plastering, lock work, carpentry, concrete work. So was it all third party at that time when you were when you were in college? Was it it was just not owned real estate. It was all uh, we know agency my, work. My dad bought his first building in the mid fifties. Oh really? Yes. Okay. And so it's called Richmond Apartments. My mom still owns it. Really? And and when dad bought it, I think it was only about five years old. And the, and Where is it located? And it's over in Southeast. And interestingly enough, we developed a development called Archer Park, which is right mm -hmm. below it. Mm -hmm. And that was a 215 unit development that we tore down and we built 190 new, newly constructed affordable units. And then we sold about 72 lots to Ryan Homes, hmm. and they built market rate townhomes right there. So it's funny how we revisit history so often. Sure. But uh, no, my mom still owns it. So my dad, as being in property management and being all over the city, saw mm -hmm. opportunities, and he took advantage of those. So he bought properties all over the city. He owns some properties in Adams Morgan, 16th Street, Upper Georgia Avenue. It was it was a combination, a method that we used right up into the mid 80s. And that was a lot of seller take back financing. Oh, really? So there might have been an underlying mortgage on the property. So took it subject to. Sure. And then the, the seller would take back a second. And in fact, until things changed towards the late 80s, a lot of the investment that we did that would have been in considered more affordable, you know, there wasn't easy access to financing. And so we would have to do a lot of, of layering. So again, maybe purchase a property mm -hmm. um, subject to the existing debt, and then the seller would give us a take back second well, mortgage. Your father's first company, Phillips, got heavily into the mortgage business. They did. And now that's, that's, that's their business. Right. right. Whereas when my dad was there working, they had, they were a full service real estate company. They sold single family. They built single family homes. They had multifamily. Right. Uh, they so had, they were like they the Donahoe's and the Sauls. Right. You know? Exactly. Right. 
Yeah. So he started accumulating some assets for himself. So what was the mix when you got into the business in 74? Was it like 50-50 owned and third party? or uh... No, I think, I think by 74, the, it was still heavily weighted towards third party management. Right. And we had very modest beginnings. Mr. Phillips passed away in 66. Mm-hmm. And then by 68, my dad made the decision that he'd go off on his own and start a property management business. And while he's developing his business plan, we had the, the 68 riots. Yes. So it's a very interesting time. It was a scary for him, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. That? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and most of what he started managing early on were properties right in D.C., Right. And they were all over. And again, when you're first starting a business, you're taking on any assignment oh, you sure. can get. Yeah. So he went over to 14th Street. Was he on that in that area where the where all the riots took place? Yeah, he he he. We managed on 14th Street, 16th Street, Adams Morgan. Uh-huh. You know, east of the river, Ward Seven and Eight, and Ward Five. I mean. It was quite a variety. We managed the Methodist building up on Capitol Hill, 110, mm-hmm. 100 Maryland Avenue. So it was a real cross-section of properties, mm-hmm. you know. With the Methodist building, we were dealing with congressmen and senators who were renting apartments. So, And these were all third parties. So the, the, yes. owner, the ownership had to have been a little bit challenged after the riots, you know, as far as value and keeping things maintained and... You know, the city was going through a tough time then, wasn't it? The city was going through a tough time. And, and you know, there was a number of property failures right. in the late 60s through mm-hmm. the 70s. Right. You know, it's hard to imagine today with housing valued as high as it is throughout yeah. the, all eight right. wards of the city. Right. But back then, and, and that gave opportunity to my dad and to the firm with, you know, Properties that uh, went into foreclosure and and uh, went to auction, and we bought a building called Hilltop House that's at Fifteenth and Euclid. We paid ninety seven thousand dollars for a ninety two unit building wow. because it had a HUD mortgage, and the person operating it could not keep it occupied, mm-hmm. and and so we bid it up at the foreclosure auction. So you don't see much of that today. No, right. Now, I read that the big, big thing for the company was about 1973 or four, where you bought it, you were involved in a huge portfolio that you acquired or were involved in. Well, National Savings and Trust was trustee for a family who owned about eight, nine assets. And so it's about a thousand unit portfolio. And we were asked to manage that. And we still manage it today. So it's a long legacy there. You always third party on that? Or you still, did you ever yep. take ownership? No. On oh, no, no, no. Third party. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And we still, over the years, we developed a number of, of assignments, properties to manage from families that had owned their assets for a number of years. And maybe the patriarch of the family used to self-manage. And then when that individual may have passed on, then the heirs had to figure out, okay, dad used to manage our two buildings on mm-hmm. New Hampshire Avenue. Now what do we do? Right. And so a lot of people turn to my dad, you know, Bill Smith was kind of thought of as the apartment doctor and, you know, he had no problem rolling up his sleeves and solving problems. 
It's an interesting orientation because most of the developers I talk to look at property management at best to a break-even business. And, you know, sometimes it's a lost leader, but they need it, obviously, to control the destiny of their, their ownership in the real estate. It sounds like the orientation that you took and your dad took was a whole, it's a whole different way of looking at things. You know, let's get the property, you know, it's always important to keep the property maintained well and do well. You know, if we make money, great, you know, but we're not here to, you know, be billionaires or something. You know, you're really, it's more of the day-to-day type of thing. Is that, is that a little bit about the philosophy of the company? I mean, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I, I think to your first part about maintaining the property, I, I think there's always been a great deal of pride with my dad and really the, the entire staff here at Smith Company right. that people would recognize our properties when they would drive through a neighborhood, be it Connecticut Avenue or be it Ford. You'd say, oh, I bet that's a Smith property because it more likely it has water and fencing all around it, has great landscaping, et cetera. But my dad also proved that you can make a living out of running a property management business. I think he also learned that that through being prudent, you could invest and buy assets, especially assets that needed repositioning and and create value and wealth there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we did. And and quite honestly, you know, we do mostly new construction today, but for most of the history of the company, mm-hmm. we were all about repositioning existing assets, no matter where they were. And, and we still have a number of properties in our portfolio that, that are examples of that, that we purchased in the 70s into the 80s. Did you have a construction company early on then, or was it all just property management? You had repair folks doing repairs and that kind of thing on building existing buildings. Right. But ground up construction when when did you kind of transition into that business when we you know with the topa law the 10 opportunity purchase act really constricted our business over time early on there were very few examples of the tenants purchasing their building right but what tenants learned is they could sell their rights to third party right how old is that and so oh god seems to me it was 78 that long. Um, yeah, it's been a long time. I, I, I may be I may be off there, but but it's been around a long time and almost um, your whole career then. Yeah. And so and like like I mentioned early on, it was it was it was kind of a non-issue, but as time moved on, especially when the tenants and the consultants, the, the law firms who who helped guide the tenants through the TOPA process realized that they could package up the tenants right to purchase mm-hmm. and go out to third parties. And so, whereas we used to, we could close nine out of 10 contracts, we found ourselves only closing maybe two or three and we couldn't compete with the third party. So we'd go out and spend a lot of energy and time finding the opportunity. Because mm-hmm. a lot of assets, some assets come through brokers, but a lot of assets that we have purchased have come through either relationships with the owners or digging up the opportunity. And so so when we got to that point, we said, you know what, we probably need to start building. And it was at the same time that we said, well, if we're going to build, then let's let's formalize our construction group. Because prior to that, we had over 100 men 
in our division really didn't even have a name that when we would purchase a property, we would bring them in. We had plumbers, bricklayers, concrete guys, but all skill sets towards taking an existing property and rehabbing. Right. So we had plasters and carpenters, et cetera. And then we would subcontract roofing and maybe window replacement, things like that. And so, so we transitioned from having over a hundred men in our, in our renovation group to going to new construction where we, we were more a profile of, of the more modern day general contractor where we have project managers and project that, engineers. and Was that technically when you transitioned into development itself, looking at situations from a developer's perspective? Yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a very fuzzy line there because I, I can't take my finger and say, all right, this is the day we really became a full-fledged development company. I think we had been doing some level of development all through the 70s into the 80s. Some people around the office pinpoint 1989 when we bought Twin Oaks, 3814th Street. Mm -hmm. That was 200 units and two buildings. And complete gut rehab there uh, or what? the, The front building was a complete elevators, everything. The back building was more substantial rehab, but not gut rehab. Mm-hmm. And so some people think that was the turning point. And, and again, we, we were still repositioning existing assets going into the early 90s, but it was probably more towards the mid-late 90s mm-hmm. when we, we started to transition over to, to new construction. So how did you weather through some of the downtimes? I mean, obviously you started out in 1968, your yeah. dad with the with the riots, and then of course the early 70s there were some struggles. Yeah. And then the the big one, of course, everyone talks about is 1990 through 92. Yeah. How did you weather through those times? But, you know, I, I think we've just been very fortunate. One, the fact that our business is centered here in Washington, DC. Mm-hmm. And so often people would say we're recession proof. You know, I think we've proven that we're not 100% recession proof. But it, it's still, when looking around the, the country, I think being here had a lot of advantages. But it, what's interesting is that we would do market rate repositionings and then we would do affordable repositionings. Mm-hmm. And from 90 to 93, we were probably as busy or busier than, than anybody in town. We bought a number of larger developments. Most of them were very challenged. One especially was the K. Fritz family was selling parklands. Oh, yeah. And that was, oh, geez, close to 12, 1,300 units. So let's stop for just a moment. Mm-hmm. 1990 was a very difficult time to arrange financing for anything yeah. new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was mostly restructurings at that point. Right. So, talk about how you were able to arrange the, the the capital structure for that. Well, fortunately, we realized that there was still financing available for affordable. Right. And so, in fact, when we went to then Nations Bank, who obviously became Bank of America, right. I believe when we did that loan with them, it was the only loan they made that year <laughs> in the mid-Atlantic wow. area was, was Parklands. That kind of marriage there. How um, did you convince them to do the deal? I mean, that, 
that had been an interesting committee presentation. You know, we haven't done any deals in a year and a half. Right. This is our deal. We want this deal. So. Yeah, well, I, was, I wasn't in the, in the loan committee meeting, but... Um, the officer had to do a lot of work to get that done, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that there was a lot of interest in, again, because it was affordable, they're trying to make it happen. Did the district government help with that at all? I mean, was there, was there a little advocacy going on Not, uh, potentially on that one? Early on, everything, purchasing parklands followed uh, a lot of the other previous scenarios in that KFRITS just took back some financing. We assumed some financing. And the one asset out there that we actually could place some debt on was the retail. And really, there wasn't anybody at that time in 1991, April of 1991, when we closed on Parklands, that would put any any bank dollars into that project. Mm-hmm. We had to go in and straighten a lot of things up before we could entertain. So you had to put a lot of equity in, into it then, in essence. Yeah. And, and with those those deals, a lot of it was also sweat equity. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we had to put an inordinate amount of time, personnel from Smith Company, because obviously rent levels are low. There was 60% vacancy. Wow. Yeah. We ended up tearing down 400 units. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we went from 1,300 down to 900. Now, the 400 we tore down, we ended up building 210 for-sale townhomes. And there we partnered with Fannie Mae. We did all market except 20% of the units were considered affordable. Of course, really the whole project was affordable. And but we the Kaferts family was in essence your joint venture partner because they did take back for financing with you on that, right? Right. And 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 I think we had terms on that financing. Well, we staggered it. And to Calvin Kaferitz's credit, I had to go back to him numerous times. Oh, over the first uh, five years and get, and get right? extensions. He did. He was very supportive. That was a very challenging time for them, the three brothers. Yeah. And they, they had their own portfolios and pretty much anybody in real estate had challenges back in the That's back in the nineties. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in fact our settlement took three days. Conrad had been in bankruptcy court. Right. And the court had to approve for him to sell his share of Parklands. And I remember going into the second day, never had a three-day closing, where we started at eight in the morning and six at night, put the pens down. And because it it was just so complicated, there was was a lot of, of, and this was not an unusual case where there was past due water bills, real estate taxes, et cetera. There was a Properties were very, very challenged back then, east of the river. And so it was not your run-of-the-mill acquisition. Who was managing the property? Was the Kaferts family managing it before you took over or what? They No, they had subcontracted it out. But that by that time, all three brothers were operating independently right. of each other. And so, and I think that led to challenges in having consensus So they ended up hiring an independent third party, and it was basically a single individual. And and eleven hundred units. Yeah, (laughs) and it had multiple. We call them villages today, but multiple sections, and each section at one time had its own rental office. 
And this manager decided that it would be more uh, efficient to close the offices down. So when we took over, there was just one office and all the buildings around the one office were actually in pretty good shape. But then the further you got away from the rental office, uh, the more deterioration you would see. You said and, it was 60% vacant when you bought yeah, it. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. It was a different time. Yeah, yeah, I'd say. So you then expanded geographically at some point up to Baltimore. Talk about that expansion and why you went there. Sure. Back in those days, we had our own brokerage division and we had sales guys out there, you know, selling properties. Just on multifamily? For third-party owners and some commercial. We bought from Dunahoe the Congressional Quarterly Building Mm -hmm. down there at 22nd and P. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we sold it to the Congressional Quarterly and then eventually they sold it. And now it's not even an office building anymore. It's Monument bought it and converted into condos. So, so a lot of evolution sure. there. Uh-huh. But but Dunahoe had built a building up in Baltimore at 37 stories and address 222 St. Paul, okay. known as the St. Paul. Ten floors of retail office and then 20, oh, 27 floors of residential. And uh, so we had about 230 apartments and about 70,000 square feet of office and probably eight to 10,000 of retail. You were man- just managing it? No, no, we bought the you building. bought it. Yeah, no, I went up there in 1979, I think, whatever I was back then, 26 years old or whatever, 25, and, and came back and, and saw my dad and said, hey, I think there's a nice asset up in Baltimore that that we should try to buy. And, and again, yeah, Dunahoe sold it and they were, they were fabulous. I, I, we know dealt with Clarence. Clarence. So, so all the, all the senior, senior Dunahoe's and put on a contract for 5,150. And again, financing was very difficult to come by, at least for a 26 year old. (laughs) And, and so I asked the Dunahoe's to take back some financing and I assumed the uh, first, which was with an insurance company. Mm-hmm. And that's how I bought it. And, but one little story here is that, again, you know, I still kind of was thinking back, wet behind the ears at 26. I did all of my pro forma projections for closing based on what I had done in D.C., like, like transfer taxes. Well, Baltimore has much higher transfer recreation taxes. Yes, Maryland does. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't have enough money to close. <laughs> and I I went to the Dunahoe's and I, and yeah. you know, Mr. Dunahoe, as I call them, but Clarence Dunahoe and explained exactly the mistake I made. And you know that he, he said, look, we're going to close. So he gave me additional, basically take back financing to cover sure. the transfer recordation taxes. Well, even you, obviously, he was probably an older guy. And you, yeah, 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 yeah. But I give him a lot of credit because, you know, sometimes think back now, would I, would I have done that, you know? And so we paid back the Dunahoe's and we ultimately refinanced it. And then what we did was back in about 1982, 1983, we got the idea that we would do all suite hotels and we'd build a little regional chain of all suite hotels. Really? And we would 
we would buy existing apartment buildings in downtown locations. Uh-huh. And so, you know, it, it's interesting, isn't it? It, <laughs> it, it? it was a variation of a theme, right? Take okay. an apartment building, sure. furnish it, right. and try to attract corporate users. Right. And so a 60-unit building one block north of 222 St. Paul came on the market, mm-hmm. put it on the contract, bought it. And that was our first, it's called Tremont Suite Hotel. It was all suites. Mm-hmm. And it was 60 suites, studios and ones. And we were in the hotel business. Now, we didn't try to operate ourselves. So we, we hired a general manager who actually worked for Conrad Kafrix because Conrad right. had a number of all suite hotels. Yeah, right. And so we hired a gentleman and he ran the hotel and hired the staff. And uh, we were off to the races. So we became the overflow hotel to the new Hyatt Regency in Baltimore. And, and they loved us and were small boutique. And we picked up a lot of corporate business. And, and really, that was our niche. And so I'd say by the end of the first year, over 20% of the hotel, 25% of the hotel were yearly leases with commercial credit, USF&G, all the corporate housing. Basically. Exactly. And so we said, wow, this, this is easy. So let's do another property. And we couldn't find one to buy. And we said, well, we got 222 St. Paul and really went back and forth and ultimately decided that we would convert 222 St. Paul. So we ended up with two all-suite hotels. And, and ultimately, though, we didn't, we didn't expand. We didn't go to Philadelphia. We didn't we, do it here. We didn't do it in D.C. And after operating the hotels for a number of years, we ultimately, about almost 10 years ago, sold the hotels and got out of the hotel business and really made a, prior to that, had made a strategic decision that we really wanted to focus on D.C. and D.C.-centric. We, we've managed property for years in, in Maryland and Virginia, but even that ma- management has lessened and really our focus is, is D.C., and, and then even within D.C., you know, it, it, it has become particular neighborhoods like Noma, sure. Tapper Riverfront, especially. Sure. So you really didn't want to expand that business, even though it was doing really well with it. It's interesting. Well, it became a hard business. And we, we hit it at the right time. Oh, Baltimore was having a renaissance. We had right. Mayor Schaefer, right. who then became yes. Governor Schaefer. That's and right. what he did to the Inner Harbor yeah. starting in 1980, 81. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so Baltimore was on the upswing. And then they opened up their new convention center, I think probably 81 after Inner Harbor 1980. And so they were attracting a lot of convention business, which was filling up the hotels. And the developers started building new hotels. Ah. It got a lot more competitive. And so by the late 80s, we, we had our hands full. And then, of course, the challenges of the early 90s. Anyway, so. Yeah. Going back to Parklands for a minute, the same year that you acquired that property, you formed the Summer Youth Employment Program. Talk about that and you know why you did it and the impact on the community. You know, early on, it was, it was when in working in under served neighborhoods, a lot of things became glaring. The city, and 
particularly back to that time in the city's history, early 90s, where the city was not delivering on services to the broader community, all eight wards, but especially east of the river. So rec centers either would be manned part-time, so rec centers weren't even open all the time, or they weren't open at all. We had rec centers, if you can believe it, in Ward 8 that were closed. Now, the fields were still there, but they weren't being maintained. So we thought, well, you know what? We have a lot of tasks around our buildings that could be by high school students. Why don't we give them a job during the summer? And so we started the Summer Youth Employment Program. And and it was as simple as, you know, we would convene, we would open it up to our various properties that, that parents could, could sign up their kids. And we literally just, it was a little more organized than this, but literally getting a lot of brooms and rakes, getting them their summer youth employment t-shirts and giving them uh, work to do around the various properties. Mm-hmm. That's where we started. Today, it's evolved into, it's far more organized. They do multiple college visits during the summer of uh, the work. There, there probably is still some raking of leaves or sweeping, but most of it now is working in, in the on-site rental offices down here at the main office, working in construction. So working for this all high school, different divisions. High school kids? Yeah. Yeah. 14 to 18. Okay. And, and it's a six week period and we've always paid above minimum wage. And like I mentioned, so the team here really every year strive to improve it. So visits to the Kennedy Center, other type of cultural experiences. So this is a 30-year-old program now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to believe. And we've averaged now for, you know, the last 20-plus years, a little over 50 to 55 individuals. Is it all in the Parklands area or is it around the city? No, we open it up to the entire city. But because of, of the need, we've drawn a lot of kids from from Ward 8, Parklands being such a sizable property. Like today, if you said, well, how many units at Parklands? Well, we incorporate a lot of other properties that had gone into foreclosure or had gotten into some challenge that gave us an opportunity to acquire the property. That Parklands today is up to 1,700 rental units. Uh, We've built two for sale communities, totaling close to 400 homes. And the big piece that we haven't gotten into yet, but is the ark. And because of the ark, it really became a home for the summer youth employment program. So we, we, we still have uh, young people working downtown, working at Northwest properties, but because of where the arc's located, because we really evolved from being, like I mentioned, 30 years ago, taking a broom or a rake, and cleaning up around the property to really now it's 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 far more focused on getting these kids connected to college to to having seminars having having individuals come in and talk to the kids about a whole array of subjects. Did this come from your your heart or your father's or how did how did it all how did it evolve? Is that a curiosity? Gosh, you know, it's 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 always hard to, to to pinpoint exactly where. I think that that our team, who was in the field, myself, a fellow named Brad Fennell, who's still here today. It's amazing the number of people here at the company 
who came to work for us right out of college and are still here today. And, and so a lot of these ideas have just come through, you know, seeing a need and then trying to fill that need. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, you, you mentioned it, and I'm, now I'm going to bring it up. Let's talk about seeing the need. Boy, the Town Hall Education, Arts, and Recreation Campus, which is known as the ARC, a spectacular misuse project you developed that houses at least 10 nonprofit arts, health, and education uh, entities. To build it, you formed a building, building bridges Bridge across, across the, the river, river, a nonprofit that raised millions from several large organizations. Talk about the idea behind this project and its evolution, along with uh, your timing. Then please describe it in its impact. Yeah. So it's tied at the hip with the villages of parklands. So we get out the parklands, as I mentioned earlier, April 1991. And we have residents moving every weekend. And they're moving to Ward 9. Maryland, Prince George's County. Right. And so, and we were hemorrhaging residents. And even though we were early on in the throes of trying to fix everything, institute a security program, make people feel comfortable. And these people, they didn't leave lightly. They, they gave a lot of thought because they had raised generational families out in this community. But finally, the writing was on the wall. I mean, there was no bowling alleys east of the rivers, no movie theaters east of the rivers. As I mentioned, half the rec centers are, are shut down. There's just no entertainment for exactly. Children. So at Parklands, we decided that we needed to do things that that maybe other properties in that community didn't have, or even in the city. So one thing we did is we built the splash park. And, and we just celebrated its 25th anniversary. We just spent a million bucks redoing it with the same contractor, Paddock uh, Pools, who built it 25 years ago, came out and we shut it down last summer, taking advantage of the, the pandemic. And we completely redid it. Now, this is, was the city's first splash park. And I don't know, John, if you've ever seen it, but oh. it, when it opened... To a lot of fanfare because the news was out, everybody was out. Fannie Mae, who's been a very good partner of ours at, at Parklands by financing the end loans and all the different multifamily buildings. And so, but, you know, it has. Is it walking distance from the ark? Exactly. It's it two is. blocks away. Two blocks away. You know, so we have an island that the kids can swim out to and then they climb around. They have cannons that shoot water and <laughs> all kinds of. Crazy slides, uh, you know, you climb up and slide out of the frog's mouth, everything. And, you you know, you don't see that east of the river, and you really didn't see it anywhere in D.C. You could find it if you went out to Maryland or Virginia. Sure. In newer properties. So we opened that. And our, our plan was to open the Splash Park and then also do a small gym. We were going to build about a 10,000 square foot building and put a basketball court in it and then some multi-purpose rooms doing various uh, activities for the kids. Well, when we opened up the Splash Park, we had over 400 kids that first day in the Splash Park. We had another 400 on the outside looking in who weren't from Parklands because you couldn't come to Splash Park unless you were a resident of Parklands. 
in the surrounding communities. And we said, oh my gosh, if we open up an indoor basketball court and, and other opportunities and limit it to, to the, just the residents of Parklands, we're literally going to have a major event on our hands. So we decided this community, you know, the community meaning much broader than Parklands, needs an opportunity like a basketball court and these multi-purpose rooms. And so let's not build it on Parkland's campus. Let's build it somewhere in Ward 8. And so we can do outdoor activities, indoor activities. And you know what? Let's find nonprofits who can bring the services. And what we will do, and we as the nonprofit building bridges across the river, we will fundraise, design, and build the center. But the nonprofits will do the day-to-day service delivery to the residents. So, but again, we, we were going to start out very modest. We, we were going to build, by then, our 10,000-square-foot building, you know, had blossomed up to 15,000, 20,000 feet. Well, as we began to engage with different nonprofits, like, you know, this Washington School for Girls or the Washington Ballet or Levine School of Music, Trinity University and others, they just embraced the idea. And, and we said, look, you don't have to raise any money because we're going to fundraise, design and build. You just make a long-term commitment to bring your services and your personnel here on a day-to-day basis. And we want a long-term commitment. We don't want a 12-month, even a 60-month commitment. So we had everyone assign these, you could call them a, a lease, but we call them partnership agreements that they would come and provide these services long-term. So we've got Corcoran School of Art. I mean, just... How did you organize Boys and Girls the architecture of a comp- as complicated a building as it is with nine non- or 10 nonprofits with completely different uses? I know. How did you do that? <laughs> so, well, today we have 14 nonprofits. And, you know, on our campus, we have three buildings. And something you'll learn soon is that we're going to build a fourth building. Really? Yes. So, but back in 2003, we opened the first building, which housed Covenant House Washington. And then we opened what we were calling the main building. And little did we know we, when we built the third building, we called the main building now the Arc East and the new building became the Arc West. And so Covenant House was a 30,000 square foot building. The main building had been 86,000. So we were up over 100, 110,000 square feet of program space. And then the third building is 93,000 square feet. And the neat part of that story was Children's Hospital asked to be part of it. And we welcomed them. And they were doing on average 11,000 patient visits a year in their clinic there. Wow. They tripled their space when they went to the third building, or now they're doing upwards of 30,000 patient visits. And they expanded their offerings. So they actually have an asthma group embedded right in the clinic over there because the amount of of young people suffering from respiratory issues. So, yeah, so that was kind of a neat story. So when, when, I know I'm jumping around here, but 
when children's moved to the to the third building called the Art West, we backfilled their space with DC Central Kitchen. And DC Central Kitchen, we told them the one piece out there, as you mentioned, we have multiple providers, is we really didn't feel like we had touched enough the whole employment piece. So we talked to DC Central Kitchen, who has a lot of volunteers come in the kitchen, sure. produce a lot of food. I've done and, it. Okay, and distribute food all over the city. We said, what about doing a cafe? And then you could teach front of the house to young people or, or anybody. And, and you could then sell the food that you're producing in the kitchen. And so that's what they did. And so today they, because we still, east of the river, as you probably know, have a real dearth of opportunities for any sit down right. food engagement. And so, although we're trying to change that at the Skyland Town Center. Let's, let's back up just for a minute yeah. the architecture, the design, yeah. and, and, and the fundraising process yeah. here. So, so we can. a group that we had used at the main hotel in Baltimore, 222 St. Paul, Air St. Gross, oh, had, sure. a, had a strong background in, in college campus design and buildings. Mm-hmm. And Richard Air's dad had uh, designed a number of John Hopkins buildings. I reached out to Richard Ayers and said, look, we're trying to do this. So they came in and designed the first two buildings. And when we went to build the third building, the lead designer, a fellow named Jim Palmer, had left Air St. Gross and opened up his practice in Alexandria. So we brought Jim over to do the third building, and now he's involved with the fourth building. Talk about the uses and, and, you know, the building is, is the most unusual building I've probably yeah. ever been in yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because you have a gym, you have a clinic, you have a dance floor with, I yeah. don't know, eight, nine layers of flooring. Right. I mean, it's yeah unique. So, <laughs> you know, and thank heaven we had a group like Air St. Gross and their team who, who had designed schools. So they, they understood how to design a theater, how to design a gym. The unique part, I thought, was the fact that, that so the gym is part of the Boys and Girls Club. Right. And so the theater and the gym back up to each other, which at first doesn't seem like a very smart thing to do because you've got basketballs bouncing. But when you're in a theater, you have no idea that on the opposite wall. Now, they accomplish that because they understand acoustics. Right. And they and they did the proper wall separation between the two uses, but it made the building very efficient to back them up to each other. But yeah, we 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 did something I think a little unique in that with each partner, we had the architect sit down with the partner and they got to design their own spaces, mm-hmm. and we wanted them to be unique. The one common theme that we we wanted was a lot of glass. Mm-hmm. So when you walk around the building. Yes. You'll notice even in the interior hallways, right? So we have natural light coming in, but also people can see what's going on. Mm -hmm. We purposely put Boys and Girls Club kind of in the back, and the gym is from the main entrance is the furthest space to get to Mm -hmm. because we knew the kids would find the basketball court. But we, on the way there, we want the kids to hear the music from Levine. Mm-hmm. We want them to see the dancers from Washington Ballet. Right. 
We want them to see the visual arts from Corcoran School of Art, etc. So, so, so there was a method to the madness there. There in, was. In doing there that. was. There was. Yeah. That's interesting. And we carried that into the third building. I don't know if you've had a tour yes. yet. Yes. You, oh, yeah. That's right. That's that right. Yeah. Year, actually. And, uh, and as, as I probably mentioned back then, with the theater, we just didn't know. We didn't want to have a partner manage the theater because we wanted that to be space that the community felt they had access to. If you have a, th- a theatrical group managing the theater and they're putting on their own plays, mm-hmm. then there's competition right. for, for usage. So we decided that Building Bridges would, would manage the theater. And so, and we were thinking, gosh, if we could just book four or five events a month and Within a few years, we were up to over 300 events a year. Mm-hmm. And so when we got up to about 330 and we decided to build the third building, we said, we need to take the pressure off the theater. So we built the black box. And now that's just as busy as the main theater is. That's exciting. It, it's neat to see young artists who can come out, poets and others who, who can get access to professional space. We have our own ICAN program, which is the technical training program. We started out as a summer program only, and now we've expanded it to a year round. And the kids all in the program are paid a stipend. That's great. And so, and and a number of have gone on to graduate and go to work at the various theatrical venues around the city. Yeah, that's great. And then you, the other thing that's fascinating is, is the Frederick Douglass anima, animatron, I guess right. you call it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about him. Well, you know, <laughs> it's always difficult for me to tell a short story. So everything is so intertwined. When we were going to a trade show for the Splash Park, it's a yeah. national trade show. So you had the likes of Six Flags and Disney and Universal, all those groups go to this type of trade show, we were there because we wanted to see the latest in technology for splash parks. We're walking around and and there's Leonardo da Vinci and he's sitting in front of us on a tablet of stone. He sees us, he stands up, he starts talking to us. We're 10 (laughs) feet away from him and we can't figure out, is he real or not? And of course, we come to learn that Leonardo was an animatron built by a company that's still in existence today up in Woodstock, Vermont. And so we said, wouldn't it be neat if we could, we love Leonardo, but if he could become Frederick Douglass. So trying to make a long story, long story short, we had him quote the price and it was 250000 So we thought, you know, at some point, we have a few extra nickels. We're going to buy him and put him in the theater because it would be great to introduce the kids of the community to, to science technology through the animatron history, through having Frederick Douglass tell about his history. And so a lot, we could weave a lot together. Anyway, so by the time we actually got to buying him, price had gone up. It was half a million dollars, but we had raised enough money to build the building and pay for Frederick Douglass. And so, but we made one fatal mistake. And that was that Frederick Douglass, who we house in the room, his study replicated from 
the house that he used to live in mm -hmm. over off Morris Road in Southeast. Mm -hmm. Well, the whole thing weighs a couple thousand pounds. And when we want to use them, we have to roll them out, hook in the hydraulic lines, the pneumatic lines, mm -hmm. and it would take a huge team to bring them out. So we solved that. When we built the black box, we gave him his own stage, as you know. So when yes, you go in, that. we don't have to connect them to anything. He just performs every day. So could you move him easily then in, in that black box or within there? I mean, could you take him so on the road, for instance, or not? Or would you have to be there? We could, but uh -huh. we don't. Yeah. I mean, he, he really, he just resides there and, and, you know, he's set up such that when you see him, you're seeing the outside of the house, you see through the window, right. you see the back of his head as if he's at his desk reading and the whole room turns. Right. And then he he sees you, stands up and he has 50 some speeches that he can relate and, and, and we tailor them to the audience. So if he's dealing with grade school kids, He'll do one speech and shorter in length. So if he's dealing with adults, he gets into some of the more serious challenges he faced as a black man. Well, he actually um, met with Abraham Lincoln himself, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Right. And used to walk over the Frederick Douglass Bridge. So a lot of neat things to tie into right. historically, but also from a technology standpoint. So we didn't get into the, all the real estate aspects of the, the ARC, which I know are detailed. So mm -hmm. you know, we had a deal with the district government, correct? Yes. So, so the land was owned by the federal government, by the National Park Service, and under the jurisdiction of the district. And we set out to get the district and National Park Service to sign a 99-year lease. Now, some people would rather, you know, go walk the desert than try to do that. So, but we hung in there, took us a couple of years, but we did get National Park Service and, and the district to sign off a 99-year lease. How large is this a parcel, is it? 16 and a half acres. And you're now pretty much fully used it now with that new building, correct? Yeah, except that we, we figured out we can add one more building. So we're looking at adding a new building that'll be around 35,000 square feet. Good. And that's because one of our partners, the Washington School for Girls, as they expanded, they ended up on two campuses. So they'd like to get back to one. We don't want to lose them as a partner. So they will, when we build a new building, they'll leave their 9,000 square feet and move into 25,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. The nice thing is we'll backfill their 9,000 square feet with another deserving uh, nonprofit. So each of these nonprofits raise their own money. There's no big bucket of big building. You don't have no. a redistribution. No, no. We, in fact, a lot of people said, look, Chris, you know a lot about building buildings and financing, you know, income producing buildings. But what do you know about building a building and take all these separate nonprofits right. and have them operate under right. one roof? Right. And so didn't ever quite admit that, yes, you're right. We don't know anything about what we're doing, <laughs> but we think we have our head screwed on, right? And we think we can figure it out. And so our model was to the nonprofit is if you will come and pay your proportionate share of the operating costs of the building. So heat, light, power, trash, sure. cleaning, right. insurance, landscaping, we will build a facility and we will then maintain the facility 
And everyone signed up for that. And we haven't lost a nonprofit. We had one partner who the founder of the nonprofit retired and the nonprofit went out of existence. But for that, everybody who joined us in 2003, 2005 are all there today. Now, Corcoran, you know, ceased to exist and was taken over by GW and GW stepped in and has maintained in their funding the ArtReach program. So it's still called the ArtReach and it still says Corcoran, but it's GW supporting it. So it's almost like a reciprocal easement agreement or a condominium association agreement to some right. extent, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 But they don't pay a mortgage and they didn't have right. to pay for the for the upfront cost to build their space out. Yeah. Right. And your fundraising effort, as I recall, was led by Bank of America, right? Weren't they the kind of the, the lead fundraisers? Uh, you know, it, it, it was a three-legged chair. It was Smith Company. It was Fannie Mae. And at the time, it was Nations Bank. Nations Bank, okay. So we got those two on board, and we basically each put up 300000 on what was no more than, I swear, at the back of an envelope concept drawing. And so that gave us our first million. And with that million, all of a sudden, we had credibility because we had tried to lay some groundwork. And, and, and how much have you raised? Well, we're talking to a lot of people and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and we didn't have the credibility, but boy, with, with Nations Bank and Fannie signing on early, then gave us credibility. And then we went on to raise, as you know, millions and millions. Yeah. Sure. So simultaneous with the, that project's evolution, the D.C. government was taken over by the financial control board yes. about that time yeah. to oversee its financial. This led to the eventual election of Mayor Williams. Yeah. It was catalytic in restoring DC's image and finance system as mayor. Talk about how your company managed through these uncertain times. It was challenging in that we would we would never have, I think, built the art if the district had opened up their schools, especially east of the river, for after school activities mm-hmm. and had opened up their gyms, had opened up their theater. To, to local groups, but the city could barely clean the schools and pay their bills. And in some cases they didn't, right, back then. So it was challenging for the whole city, especially challenging east of the river. You know, there were strong voices in other parts of the city. So when a stop sign was re- was taken or, or there was a pothole or missing sidewalk or curb, residents were fairly vocal. But East of the River did not get the same attention as the rest of the city did. The whole city was challenged, but especially East of the River. So having Tony come in and one, establish credibility around the country with Wall Street and people financing new development was was just extremely important. And, And then we could start to begin to see the changes, and then they continued through Adrian Fenty with his focus on schools. I mean, Mm -hmm. back during the control board days, we adopted probably half a dozen schools. We got involved with Lou, uh, Johnson Junior High, Garfield, Green Elementary, Patterson Elementary, because they had had very nice principals who cared, who had very little resources. When we went to Garfield, 
And we toured with Dr. Peel and principal, who was one of the founding board members at the ARC. We went into the boys' bathroom and none of the stalls had doors. Mm-hmm. There was no toilet paper. There was no paper towels and there was no hand soap oh. in every bathroom. And we, of course, we had to ask, are young people, young men going to come in here and use the bathroom with no stall doors, no toilet? I mean, were the girls' and, rooms and, the same? It, they, they were a little better, but not much. I tell people the story and they really don't believe me. They, they humor me. They listen, but they don't. But that, I mean, I was there with a fellow named Skip McMahon who helped co-found the, the, the ARC with me. Right. And that's exactly how it was. So it, it, it was worse than worse. So your company basically um, subsidized these schools? To well, we went in and we put in toilet paper holders. We put in towel, right. towel dispensers and we fixed up Garfield. We painted the entire interior of the school. Wow. And we were tight partners with Dr. Peel and he was fabulous. And those kids were very calm and they were very respectful. There was no graffiti in the school. We went in expecting, oh my God, you know, you know, based on the physical condition, this is going to be a mess. And it wasn't. It was clean. It was neat. But it was worn because the, the, the city had not reinvested over the years. So give Tony Williams a lot of credit for getting the momentum going. Adrian Fenty for picking up the, the baton on the schools. And then, and really all the mayors have continued it. So now Baloo's a brand new school, and we have a number of brand new schools east of the river. You know, it's interesting. You you became the backstop, it seems like, for a lot of these neighborhoods. If it weren't for your company, I don't know, you, you wonder what would have happened to some of these kind of areas, you know, you know, what you came up with. Well, certainly we've been we've been happy and and, and that we've been a part of of kind of the the revitalization, rejuvenation of East of the River, especially Ward 8, another project. But, you know, we, we had great partners. And again, I mentioned Bank of America and, and Fannie Mae. The Ark is in Oxen Run. Sure. And it's a long swath of land that travels through Ward 8 to northwest having Rock Creek Park. But mm-hmm. you have a beautiful stream that runs right. through it. But it has always been viewed as a negative, not a positive. So back when we had, remember when we had the tire epidemic where, where haulers were not taking the tires to the appropriate dump, it was cheaper. They went east of the river and would dump it on the woods. So they, they became home to drug activities. They became, they just really were viewed as a negative, not a positive. So we outlined a 25 acre piece and went to Fannie, who often would partner with us. And, and they were such a great corporate partner. And we, we want to redo this 25 acres. And we want to do it in, in three phases. And so the first phase, there was an amphitheater. People didn't even know the amphitheater was there because it was so overgrown, falling apart. Everything was overgrown. So we had, we had total 900 volunteers. Mm. Close to 700 of them came from Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae organized buses and bust in all their volunteers from their CEO, Dan Mudd, on down. Wow. Were all there, rolled their sleeves up and, 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 and worked. And we transformed that, that 25 acres. And all, go look at it today, Mississippi and Wheeler Road. 
And so that was phase one. And, and give Fanny a lot of credit for that. Phase two was a dilapidated old ball field. So we took that ball field, expanded, put all new fencing, new dugouts, new backstop, took out all the top layer of packed clay where grass couldn't grow, put new soil in, put all new sod in, and, and put in a first-class ball field. We haven't done phase three. Phase three is we want to build a year-round indoor baseball facility. You know, once you capture the interest of these young people, you need to keep them 12 months out of the year. Mm-hmm. There's too many other opportunities to do other things that, that aren't beneficial. Now, it's not, you said Mississippi. Is this walking distance from the ARC site? It's a nice walk. It's okay. a nice walk. I'd say it's every bit of a half a mile, three-quarter mile walk, right mm-hmm. down Mississippi Avenue. Sure. Yeah. Got it. So your company started building for sale housing as well. Was this market rate or affordable housing? And how closely did you work with the gov- D.C. government and working with the it, housing stock? You know, it's been both. And we're not for sale how housing developers mm-hmm. per se. But when we've done a a community or redevelopment of a, of a neighborhood, we've introduced for sale housing as one of the, one of the opportunities and also uh, felt like it would help stabilize things. So at Parklands, when we tore down 400 units, we built 210 for sale townhomes. And we introduced this radical idea. This is, ni- is 1999, 2000, that long ago that we would sell townhomes from 99,000 to 130,000. People thought we were absolutely nuts that we were going to sell a townhome, three-story townhome mm-hmm. with one car garage east of the river for over 100,000. I had a senior person here at Smith Company who one day came up, I was walking down the, the corridor, he put his arm around me and he said, Mr. Smith, I think you've bitten off more than you can chew. <laughs> now, maybe call him our doubting Thomas. I don't know. But we proved him wrong because we sold out all 210 townhomes before we had finished the last third of the project. Now, a couple of things we did. We took um, space and made it into a home buyers club. We hired two trainers who came in and ran the home buyers club and we how to buy a house and we opened up yeah, yeah because we have generational sure. rental families right and understand how do you put a deposit together sure. you know what's a mortgage all that and so so we circled cycled a lot of people through that home buyers club and some say do you charge no we don't charge do you require that they buy at oxen creek no we don't because success for us is if they just go buy a home. Now, we really hope they're buying it in Southeast and Ward 8. And even better would be if they bought it at Oxen Creek, which a number of them did, did do that. But, but Frank Range used to love to tell this story because Fanny partnered with us and through the American Communities Fund, actually funded some of the equity on the deal. And so the homes, by the time we were finished and one or two years into it, Home started reselling at three hundred thousand, and Frank Range used to love to tell the story that two hundred and ten homes 
average sale price was 100 to 130. Now it's 300 to 330. It's 200,000 of wealth creation per townhome or $40 million of wealth creation in that community. Yeah. yeah, that's a great yeah. story. That's great. So then the company diversified again in the early 2000s to build what we're sitting in, the yes. first office building. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about why you did that, just curiously. Well, let me start with why we came down here to the Navy Yard. It okay. wasn't called the Capitol Riverfront back then. Sure. So Eddie Brown had bought the old Woody's a department store. A building, and she was going to donate it to the uh, to the opera, and they were going to build the opera house there. And so that didn't work out because when they did the feasibility study, they realized it was going to be a couple hundred million to take this 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 wonderful old retail structure and re and, and convert and it. In. Yeah, Doug Jamal. So <laughs> she decided to sell it, yes. and so there was a pre bid conference right. at the facility, and I went to it. And, and I'm sure Doug was somewhere in the back corner. But so a buddy of mine who's in real estate business was there. And he said to me, what are you doing here? I said, I think this would make a wonderful residential building. And, and so he said, well, if you like big old buildings, the Washington Post is selling their printing facility down in the Navy Yard. So finish the story in Woody's. I think we offered $13 million And I think... Doug offered like 18. So we were out there. But so we came down here and we, the post didn't even uh, list it with a outside brokerage group. They sold it in house through the legal department, which kind of gets you taking notice. And that's because <laughs> they were concerned about the environmental potential issues and any environmental Was representation. That the for that? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So 220. 225 Virginia Avenue. Right. And so so now it's 200 I Street because they reversed the entrance around. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we bought the building and we got the lot next door. And we thought all the vil- the value was in the, 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 the post building. And we ended up leasing it to a group out of Texas who then did a $20 million renovation to it to make it because it sits on major long haul fiber that they could do a, a telecom data building and they never signed the tenant, but, you know, we had them under a long-term lease. So the ground next door ended up, it was on a square 737. Today we built the collective, which is three buildings, market rate, totaling 1135 units. And that really ended up becoming a valuable piece. Not that, Post building wasn't in, in too complicated a story, but in the end, we deeded it over to the, the city, bought the building, and did a major renovation to it, and, and now houses a number of city agencies. Mm-hmm. But that's what brought us here. So once we got here, and our offices were down at Thirteenth and L, we said, "Well, you know, what else can we do down here?" So we assembled the site here at 1100 New Jersey Avenue, probably had 20 owners. And, and we knew that NAFSI was coming from Virginia over to the Navy Yard. And, and then the contractors who serviced NAFSI would be coming to this neighborhood. And so and we ultimately became the fifth building that was built to service NAFSI 
and and we had not been in the in the we had owned office buildings mostly on the smaller size like 60 70,000 square foot buildings but and this is 300,000 so we figured we needed a partner so Spalding and Sly built ADM right down the street here and so we knew a couple guys over there one thing led to another and we joint ventured on an 80 20 we were 80 they were 20 and, and, and their model was more as a merchant builder, build it, lease it, and sell. And so we bought them out after we had built the building and leased it up. And so we'd leased the whole building up except for the 10th floor. And so and by that time, we had bought two more sites down here. So I suggested to the team, well, why don't we move down there? And it was interesting. The hue and cry like. There's no restaurants. There's no retail. You know, we can't leave downtown and all the objections. So we said, you know, we think long term, it's a good move. So fortunately, baseball followed us. And so the Nats um, weren't that that hadn't been hadn't been announced. We, you know, truth be told, we knew there was three potential sites Mm -hmm. and that this was one of them, but it hadn't been selected yet. So we got lucky because with. With the, the Nationals coming down, it it, it, it it softened up some of the... And this was before, you know, at the time, I think it was Mayor, was it Mayor Fenty or was it Williams? When, you know, Forest City took, took the Navy Yard project on that RFP. Yes, yeah, that, that was under Williams. That was and, Williams, okay. Yeah, and Eric Price was in place, Price, Steve right. Green. Right. And so, and that's how we got the Canal Park. So we're underway to build this building. And okay. we'd, we'd assembled, we had to give everybody non-contingent contracts, which meant that's the only way we could get people to take us seriously. Because a lot of people had tried to assemble different sites down here mm-hmm. and they were tired of these contingent contracts that would fall out. So we said no contingency, which meant any one of, of the parcels in here could have been a spike and could have held out. But everyone, no one did. And we assembled the whole thing. So we're underway with, with the designing and ultimately starting the construction of the building. We said, we got three city blocks out here, which we now call Canal Park. And two of the blocks house DC school buses. And the drivers come in at 5.36 in the morning because they're diesel engines and start them up to warm them up. So for, for the early office users that came down here. It was terrible walking down the sidewalk and you got all that, you know, you got hundred buses all warming right. up in the morning. Right. So we went to Eric Price and Steve Green and we said, look, we would like to build a three block park. And this is almost a quote. Eric said, look, great idea. We have no money. If you can, if you can figure out how to raise the money and we'll get you access to, to the, to the three blocks. So we did a couple of things. One is we went and talked to some friends up on Capitol Hill. And ultimately we got an earmark for two and a half million. And then Andy Altman, Office of Planning, kind of got jazzed by it. And they got JBG as a proffer to- To the Department of Transportation right, building. Right. Uh, to put up another two and a half million. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, we got five million. And then, so we create, recreated Canal Park Development Associates to, to, again, fundraise, design, and build a three-block park. 
And so it, it, it took a number of years to actually get Was it. JBG in that mix? Were they helping um, you? They they were they were had a seat on the board and mm-hmm. and but basically it was the team here at Smith Company who just managed the, the process of building the park. And we used something called new market tax credits sure. to, to to help boost the, the dollars and 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 you know we opened now whatever it was, seven, eight years ago. And we've got ice skating in the winter and we got the fountains during the summer and we've got a restaurant over there and, mm-hmm. and just a nice place for the residents that live in the community to the office workers. So you've talked about Canal Park and, and Oxen Park. What about Archer Park? So Archer Park is a is an apartment building. It's 190 units and it's built as affordable housing, but it, it, it has the park name on it. Okay. So that's just a that's just a project. Yeah. Yeah. So in essence, what you've done in, you know, with the Ark and this canal park is when you develop, you look at the, the surroundings, the neighborhood, usually, when you think about things. What impact can we look at to improve the neighborhood that our properties are in? Exactly. That's a principle we, we follow. So, so our communications director, who heads up a lot of our philanthropic efforts and, and a lot of the asks that we get from groups. And what we explain is, is that we go all in when we're in a, in a neighborhood. So mm-hmm. we're just not going to do the bricks and mortar. We want to see how we can improve the public realm and the physical and the, 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 the city assets that are around there. So it's a school, it's a park, whatever it may be. So you bring the Midas touch to a neighborhood, basically. Well, I mean, we, <laughs> We're just trying to do our part, you know, at the Skyland Towns. I was about to get into that project, okay. so let's go there. Well, it, it, if I back up a second, we, we did a, a development called Sheridan Station, and it was, it was the old Sheridan Terrace public housing. You know, the famous story that, that back when Clinton was in office, he used to go out on Suitland Parkway to Andrews and used to drive by this dilapidated, vacant public housing. And eventually, from what I understand, through comments he may or may not have made about, you know, this is terrible having all this housing need and we have housing and it's it's vacant. The housing Authority tore it down, put out an RFP. We responded. We ultimately were chosen. And it was one of the last Hope Six done. And we did a mixed income community. 336 homes we built, everything from multifamily to townhouses. We also built with that 80 for sale units, mm-hmm. uh, most of them market, and but also uh, a number of affordables. But anyway, so we're building that project fairly visible, fairly sizable. We had a ton of people come to us and want to a job because anytime you see a huge construction job, sure. you, you associate that with the opportunity <laughs> for employment. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing worse than having your on-site construction team try to manage individuals who are looking for, they're either underemployed or unemployed. And, you know, a superintendent, he's just focused on budget and schedule. And so, but he'd give out applications and we did hire people from the community, but we didn't like the process that we were part of. 
And so with Skylands, I went to Gary Rappaport and, and it was no sell. I mean, Gary was on board as soon as, as soon as I mentioned it, I said, let's do it different this time. Let's not have individuals just flood the construction trailer looking for applications to get a job. Mm -hmm. Let's lease retail, a storefront, and let's make it into the Skyland Workforce Center. And again, we pitched to about half a dozen nonprofits saying, look, all you have to do is bring your programming services. We'll pay the rent. We'll outfit the space. You just commit to come there. And so we have the Skyland Workforce Center right there on Good Hope Road, right across the street from the Skyland Town Center. And it's been operating now about six years. So Gary and I funded it the first three years. And it, it was not inexpensive. And so probably invested well over 750000 between Gary and I to pay the rent, to pay. So we hired some staff to manage the, the, so is this the kind of like an employment desk. agency? Exactly. It, it's a storefront. You go right in. We renovated the whole mm -hmm. interior of the space. And so individuals go in and, and they get connected depending upon their needs. So there's an intake. And once we learn past experience, maybe challenges they have, because there's a reason someone's unemployed. It might be education related, might be health related. It might be a number of reasons. The, the intake group then tries to figure out, okay, you should work with this group. So, so some of the partners like Bite Back, they do computer training. So other groups are, are teaching soft skills and, and it, it's, it's a real collaboration. And so Bite Back had a great idea. We outfitted this large room, bigger than this room, with about 18 computers set up in a training setup. And so when they're not having training, we open it up to the community and the community teach, treats it like the public library. They come in and sit down and they use the computer. So great. yeah, a lot of great synergism there. And so almost like a mini the yard in some respects. Exactly. So we went to the yard <laughs> after our third year and said, why don't you consider taking this on as one of your yeah. extensions and they have and now finally a workforce center is part of of the arc interesting yeah so in essence you rolled your investment into the arc kind of thing you and gary did to yeah. some extent exactly well that's interesting so talk about skyland we how many hours or days yeah. or months well, do you have <laughs> i had had breakfast with gary last friday okay and i said to him i said you and chris need to write a book about this project, literally, yeah. write a book about it yeah. because it's a 20-year saga, basically. And right. with him, 20, I don't think you've been in it no, quite no. as long as he no, has. No. We're a couple years less. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, I've known Gary for 30-some years, mm -hmm. and we, we talked about, I mean, he told me when he got into it. I said, Gary, when I first met, when he first mentioned it, I said, Gary, this is a huge mess. I mean, there's 20-some owners. And, I mean, just what a mess here. What? Why do you think he, he said, John, I have a, this really feeling that I really want to give back to right. the community. Right. It's really important to me. Right. And so talk about that feeling. And, yeah. you know, yeah. and then he meets you, and you guys 
almost hit it off immediately because yeah. you have the yeah. same kind of philosophy about it. And, you that. know, he hasn't wavered at all from that vision that he had now 20-some years ago. And so he was working with then, who was the local quasi-government agency that was managing the disposition. The Anacostria um, Waterfront? NCPC. Oh, NCPC, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So they, the RFP was to develop an all-retail. So, right. So through eminent domain, they would take the 20-some different parcels and make it into one site, and then dairy would would redevelop it with the new retail center. So then somewhere along the way in that first year or two, NCPC said, you know what? We want residential. And Gary says, well, I'm not a residential developer. I'm a retail guy. And so he realized then that he needed to partner. So he went out and talked to a number of different groups. We were recommended to him. So he called me up one day and we met. And like you say, we hit it off and we became the residential partner. And uh, it had a lot of fits and starts and, and a lot of things happened along the way. But we, we just opened up the Crest, which is the first phase. And it's the first 263-unit apartment building. Really, the first market rate rental housing built east of the river mm. in the last 40-plus years. Wow. Yeah. And so it sits on top of. 85,000 square feet of retail and which are right now a little over 50% leased and CVS and Chase Bank were our first two retailers to open. And, and so then we moved over to phase two, which has a 30,000 square foot Lidl, a Starbucks, and then inline a retail strip that has five retailers, all food and beverage and, and all leased up. So Kind How, of how's the residential leasing doing? Very well. Very well. We are now about 45%, 40% occupied. And we started, we kicked off leasing in April of this year. So in spite of the pandemic, I think we've had very good response. What's the, um, the tenant mix? Is it is it families, young people? I mean, what, what? It's single professionals who are working for the U.S. government, D.C. government, fire department, policemen. I mean, it really, it's market rate, but, but some might term it workforce housing. Right. It's really hitting those earning about 80% of AMI, which really is, is a group that we really haven't been able to cater to because, you know, with, with any of the subsidy programs like the low-income tax credit program is 60% or right. less. Right. Uh, the Housing Production Trust Fund. Is, is geared towards 50% or less of AMI. Mm-hmm. So those who are over that threshold, they really don't have any opportunities. And so that that 65% of AMI to 100% of AMI really is, is, is an untapped so market. So what's the monthly rent there that where that bucket fits in, in essence, for people you know, on an individual basis? Yeah, so so two bedroom, two bath units rent for around twenty four hundred, mm-hmm. and the one bedrooms are about sixteen hundred, sixteen fifty. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go into downtown Washington to rent there, you know, five to six thousand a month for a two bedroom apartment, right? At least. Well, it's a range of thirty five hundred to five thousand. Okay. And uh, and the one bedrooms, depending upon size, and our one bedrooms are fairly sizable, but. One bedrooms can range in the low two thousand up to three thousand. 
Oh. Yeah. 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 So, and the views of downtown on the what's the north end of the of the crest is just spectacular. I mean, you just sort of sit up on a bluff and looking down into the city. It's kind of neat. It's interesting as you drive on Alabama Avenue, which is one of the major arterials. Yeah. Some of the views of, of the wash there are the best in the entire city. Oh, they are. They are. <laughs> really. It's amazing. So, you know, let's now shift to your company and your team a little bit. Uh, I read an article citing a few key employees, such as Brad Fennell, you mentioned his name, mm -hmm. been 30 years. Describe your company culture and how it evolved, Chris. You know, I, I think my dad sort of laid the groundwork for, for, for this feeling very much like a family business. It was, I mean, my three sisters who have all now gone on to, to, to raising kids and other things, but all, all three worked here. And, and dad openly encouraged family members of, of staff to come work for the company. Number of them came through the summer youth employment program. A uh, number of individuals like Brad Fennell, another young man, he's not a young man anymore, but Pat McKenzie used to work for the company during high school. And then when they got out of college, they, they, they came back around and, and they, they joined us. And now Brad Fennell is a executive VP and, and runs our whole development group. And so, but if, if you talk to, to individuals around the different departments, property management development, you'll find that there's fairly long tenure uh, with these individuals. And even though with the hotels, at one point, we were over a thousand employees. Mm. Uh, now we've backed down to about 600. And, you know, today a lot, a lot more is outsourced. You know, your front desks are concierge supplied by a third party. You do your own leasing of the units and stuff? Yes, we do. Yeah, so management, we do. leasing, we do. construction. Then we have subsidiaries. We have district electric services, electrical contractor. We have washing, heating, and cooling. And a lot of these businesses came about because we were using, I don't know if you ever remember, a group called Hessek Oil. Yes. But they provided yes. well, number two oil to a lot of the uh, buildings around town, especially Wisconsin, Connecticut Avenue. that had those big old central boilers. And so when they decided to sell and, and they were going to lose their we were going to lose access to their service department. We took the service manager and we started washing heat and cooling. Then he brought a lot of his oil service mechanics and that's a dying trade. And so, so today washing heat and cooling services, all of our large central boilers. Now we're not building any new buildings with large central boilers, but we have a lot of older properties that we need to service. So we started something called washing commercial services we were never crazy about Solon, if you knew the, uh, the laundry coin people. Oh, sure. And the coin-operated laundry equipment people. And so we decided just to get in the business to because we wanted newer machines and blah, blah, blah. And so we ended up, we've, we've dropped back now, but we were at one point maybe up to 1,500 machines. Mm -hmm. And so because a lot of the buildings that we may have serviced and have been renovated when they're renovated and, the, and the, the new units have individual washer dryers. So there's no, there's no need for the, right. uh, for the central laundry room, but we still have about a thousand machines. I can yeah. imagine. I mean, yeah. you're, a lot of your buildings are yeah. 50 yeah. to a hundred years old. <laughs> exactly. 
right. Exactly. Right. So how did you manage through the pandemic? Has it had an impact on your company's operations and cash flows? You know, it, it has in that because of the the eviction moratorium on a national level right. and a local level. And, you know, and, and the first thing that John Ritz, who heads up our property management division, first thing he did was set up a, a web address and a, and a hotline for any of our residents who either through through losing their job or some aspect of the pandemic couldn't pay their rent. We wanted them to call us and then we would, we would work with them. And so, but I'd say through the height of it. So maybe starting last summer through the fall into the spring, I think we were, our accounts receivable was increasing by half a million a month, Mm -hmm. a month. And so, and hardest hit were the, the naturally occurring affordable units and also some of the light tech, low income tax credit units. Mm-hmm. And so when we have a portfolio of a little over 10,000, 10,500 units, that was an impact that there was a number of programs that you could access last year. And, and we did that. And then of course, with the federal relief that, that came into the spring, and like with every jurisdiction, it was very cumbersome to get the new program out. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, the, that cumbersomeness made its way into the program. And so it can be very challenging. But I think that to date, we have tapped into probably over seven, eight million dollars of federal help. So it, it's a big problem. Then, then there was everything else we needed to do from, from, from trying to make our buildings as safe as possible and, uh, and work with our residents and from everything from mask wearing to, to providing, you know, lotions and things to, to, to help. How about your employees? How do they manage through? You know, so early on, everyone went remote, but we gave those who wanted the opportunity to come to the office, come to the office. So out of maybe 90 in the main office here, there was probably a, a group of 12 or 15 who came in every day, who never, never missed a day. And, and that was very helpful. I mean, it, it, it's tough to run a business, especially the housing business, and not have people here. A lot of things you can do remote, but at the end of the day... 24-7 business, right? right exactly. And you need eyes on, yeah. on the product. And, and, and so I'd say by last fall people started trickling back. And by this spring, we were probably 80% back. And then we had recommended everyone to be back after Labor Day. And But like most companies, we've just been very flexible. If, if somebody has themselves or someone in their family that's compromised, then we said, you know, you work 100% from, from home. It still remains to be seen how all this is going to work itself out. And will we have, you know, some individuals who permanently will work maybe two, three days a week at home? Right. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Well, the standard, I mean, the question is, what's the standard going to be going forward right. for right. in office? versus being? And I think it really depends on the business and what it is. I mean, in, in your business, you've got to have people on site if you're at some of your properties. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. You you can't you can't like my dad would say you can't do property management remotely. 
No. You need to physically, you have to have eyes on the problem. You need to solve it. You need to solve it right away. If you do that, then you're going to have happy residents and yeah. small problems will stay small problems. They won't become big problems. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about your services. I know we, you talked a little bit more. Are there, are you guys looking to expand your services or, or you know, do you feel like you're, you, you're where you are, where you need to be right now, or what? I think so. I, I, I think that we don't want to get in the trash business or the elevator business. I mean, we, we have vendors who, who can do a good job providing that. I think that... that You don't manage office the office space now, do you? Yeah, do, yeah do we, manage, we manage this building. We just built the brand new headquarters for DDOT. It's called 250M. Mm-hmm. And we manage that. And we're not retailers per se, in the retail business, but a lot of our buildings, newer buildings especially, are mixed use. So like up at the Collective, we have Whole Foods as a retail. What about the no, so that, Gary, that, I know, yeah, retail. Yeah, so there, Gary and the Lustine family own the first floor retail right. like as a condo. And then we partnered 50-50 with Gary to do the residential. So you manage the residential and he manages the retail. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Interesting. And then out at Skylands, we manage the residential. We both have ownership in the residential. We both have ownership in the retail, but he manages the retail. So how do you finance your projects historically? I mean, it sounds like you have Flytech, you have affordable, and you have market rate. Correct. It seems like you have yeah. all three. Yeah. And you have commercial properties too. So, yeah. so on the on the the affordable practice, we finance that through DHCD, through the Housing Production Trust Fund, and through the 4%, 9% tax credit program. Mm-hmm. And then and then all of the banks uh, pretty much participate in the LIHTC program, providing construction loans and, and, and also through Housing Finance Agency, through bonds. On the market rate, to date, by and large, we've been fairly lucky that we've been able to self-fund our equity. We've never really gone down the road of using institutional equity. You know, it's just something we've, we've just managed Have you ever thought about do. forming a, doing a fund of any, any sort for equity? You know, we, we actually, you know, even though I said that, we actually did partner with a very large pension fund back about now almost 15 years ago. And it's going to be a $130 million fund. We put up 30 and the pension put up a hundred, mm-hmm. which we did. And, but we had to close on assets in the first year. We could, every asset that we had, I had on the contract had, had some entitlement issue. And so we could not. So it, after one year, we, we, we shook hands and parted ways, but, didn't we didn't buy any assets so you're fund. kind of under the gun to, to close it seems like to make deals happen is that it yeah, yeah. They, they didn't want to just have that commitment sit out forever so that's totally understandable mm-hmm. and so yeah so we uh, the collective upstreet 1100 units we, we self-funded all that so so it probably limits the amount of deals we can do but also we it, it's nice that we answer to ourselves and mm-hmm. So as far as looking at new business, do you look to acquire 
and renovate mostly, or are you looking to do sites and ground up, or is it kind of an interesting mix? It's an interesting mix. We just last week closed on two adjacent parcels on South Capitol Street that will now, we're in design on a 517 building, apartment building. So when we have one other site that down here that, that we're in, in the final negotiation. So let's talk about that project, 517 units. Yeah. You're going to self-fund the equity on on a project of that magnitude? Yeah. Yeah, we will. So, you know, we've been been fortunate to that over the years, we didn't pull a lot of equity out of our properties, multifamily properties. So we're able to now refinance, pull, pull that cash out and use that as equity going in on these newer deals. Right. And we've been fortunate in, we, we, for years, our mantra was never sell. And so we have properties now that we've owned 30 plus years, fully depreciated. And so we've actually in the last five years started selling some of these assets just because some need to be recapitalized, need to be redone. Well, you've run out of appreciation too, right? Some of them, yeah, right? yeah. So, so yeah, Gary Rappaport has the same philosophy. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't yeah. sell, right? Right. It's interesting. So, let's see. Shift to the market a little bit. Urbanization and TOD have been leading trends over the last twenty years. Your company's commitment to urban development, even before it was chic in DC, was uh, only benefiting the company. I presume benefit the company. In addition to your alliance with Rappaport, have you aligned with other developers or investors who wish to tap into your urban market presence? So, yeah, I I think that if you look at, you know, what we did with 2M up in Noma, down in the Capital Riverfront, I mean, you know, they're all the TOD developments. and, And I think that we made that real strategic shift, a conscious shift, you know, 15, 20 years ago that, that we were going to focus a lot more on D.C. and D.C.-centric, and we sold the hotels. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, an opportunity came up to purchase about 1,800 units in Ohio. And so I called one of my banker friends who had some experience out there and was asking her, her opinion on a few things. And she finally said, Chris, let me ask you something. Why? You're in, you're in a fabulous city with plenty of opportunity. And do you or your team want to be traveling? And, you know, and so I hung up and I thought more about it that night and said, you know what, I think she's right. I think that, you know, we just have so much opportunity here, even though we have, you know, a skill set and we probably could use that skill set in other cities and jurisdictions. But really, until they're isn't opportunity here. Why not just continue doing what we're doing? Uh, and you've never gone to the suburbs, really, either. You've stayed in the city itself. Well, you know, mostly. we bought a thousand unit portfolio in Preachy County. We owned it for about 10, 12 years. And that was a partnership with a group out of Holland and a very nice partnership. And they decided that they wanted to exit. So we sold those thousand units. So we have had and still have interest in Maryland, Virginia, but we haven't expanded that right. in the last 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you must be amazed at what's happened in the city. I mean, uh, I've lived here in this market for 36 years and, you know, just in the last 15 years to see what's happened in, in the city itself, yeah. it's just been dramatic. The demographic change has been it's fantastic, unbelievable. Well, I, and again, as I touched earlier, I think 
the city now went from, went from, you know, really neglecting the civic assets to, to really now turning them around and enriching them. The new schools are local parks and, and all the investment that's come into the parks and, and just everything. I mean, you know, uh, 30, 40 years ago, the city hardly had a fleet of vehicles. Now you see a lot of very nice new trucks and trash trucks and others around the city. And then, you know, we were the pothole capital of the world. I haven't heard a joke about DC and potholes in, I don't know, the last 10 years. And, you know, on all that, I think is why we've gone from 560,000 to, I think we're over 700,000, but I know the official count is <laughs> 689. So let's shift to sustainability. How do you view that? As that definition changes. Well, I, I think that we've really embraced it, not only because our buildings are, are lead, silver, lead, gold. We, we did deliver the first lead platinum multifamily building in the district. And it was a mixed income building on Super Parkway called Sheridan Station, 114 units. It was part of a larger development. So we're very proud of that. We, we, get excited about these days. At first, we're like, oh, my God, we have to do this. And then we, when we learned the technology, we embraced it, such as putting these cisterns in the building to collect all the stormwater. Now we take that same stormwater now and reuse it in our cooling towers. Our residents love when we put the, the computer screens in the lobby showing the, uh, what the solar farms are doing up on the roof in terms of producing uh, power. Hmm. It's just it, it, interesting how it seems to fascinate all of us this, yeah. to see that we're, we're converting the sun into energy mm-hmm. and, and it's profitable. I mean, with all of the, the credits and the, and the, and selling the SREX and, and, and producing the, the energy. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that we're, we're constantly looking to, so, you know, what's the next, the next evolution of, of sustainability and sure. Yeah. So what other trends do you see in the market based on the, what's happened, the pandemic and things that you've seen over the years? I mean, what, what do you see coming? I mean, technology has been huge and obviously yeah. that has indexed. I mean, what are you seeing? Well, I, th- I think in our design, like our new building, we're in this, we're in design on five buildings right now. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at adding more elevators, which adds more cost. And I think that's a complete outgrowth of the of the pandemic. We never embraced micro units. I know up at the collective, we did 1,100 units. We did two tiers of micro units. I think the vote's still out, whether we would do it again or not. And I think some people have been very successful with micro units. Just we, we never could fully embrace it. And now our average square footage, which is, of course, the industry seeing it too, is, is, is going up. I mean, it had been going down for the last 20 years. And now we're designing this 500 plus unit building on South Capitol Street. And the average square footage is over 800. Whereas a lot of, whereas the average used to be around 750 and then it got below seven. And so we, we, in our new building, we won't have any studio. And again, things are trends. I'm sure it'll cycle back around. And so we try not to 
go too far one way or the other. Are you seeing some of your tenants being spending more time in their units and using more utilities and just not because they're not going to their office? They're not. Yeah. So we kind of went all in on the amenity side, uh, especially at the collective. We have over 100,000 square feet of amenity space. We have a high school regulation uh, gym, basketball court. We have a tennis court. We have a racquetball court. We have a golf simulator. Oh, my goodness. Uh, We have an indoor 25-meter lap pool. We have two pools on the roof. We have two spas on the roof. We put in a commercial kitchen in in, in the same building, the Agora, that the Whole Foods is. Uh, We have a wood-burning pizza oven in that commercial kitchen. But the idea is that, and we have two positions up at the collective. One is our activities director and then our athletic director. And those two people program all of the amenity spaces. And so now the pandemic threw a little bit of a wrench because we, we, we had to go complete virtual and now we're back and, and we're probably 50-50 headed towards, you know, having everything back in person. But so prior to the pandemic, activities director would hire a local chef to come in and teach our residents paella. So they would sign up. And of course, everything now is electronic. So they have this thing, mobile doorman, and you just go on and you, you, and you book a slot. Just like if you play golf these days, you sure. don't call the pro shop anymore. Right. You just go online. Right. It's the same thing. If you want to swim for an hour and do laps in the indoor pool, you're doing it all. You just and so this is only for residents. Then. You don't. You're not opening exactly. it up outside. Only okay. for residents. So when we were designing the third building that opened up September of uh, last year, it's called 150I the Garrett, and that was the third building of the collective. We were designing it now what five six years ago. We decided that we would do co work space. So the second floor of the building is is co work. And with the thinking that some of our residents would, or prospective residents would like to live somewhere because they're a salesperson and they have the mid-Atlantic region, they don't need an office, but they could use a co-work. And so, and and obviously we're paying attention to WeWork at the time. Now, co-work has gone through a lot of iterations and ups and downs in the last two years. But, but we opened up the, the care with the co-work and it's doing very well. We have private offices and then we have group tables like this and, and it's, it's a nice offering. So Chris, tell me about uh, how you hire your, uh, your staff. What do you look for in your prospective employees? You know, we, we like to find people who have a passion about our business. And even though they may be fresh out of college, they have to express an interest because we have a strong affordable housing practice. They have to be very interested in improving community. But even in the market rate side, they, they we like someone who's passionate and we not everybody is local, but clearly if you walk around the office, you meet a lot of people who have grown up in DC and they might be a, a um, a cousin of somebody who, who works here. 
Right. And we've always, we've always encouraged that. We like to hire people who we like to be around. Sure. And so it, I think it makes for much better collaboration. But yet we want people to be independent thinkers. I mean, we, we, we do want disagreement. We, we don't want everyone just to nod right. their head. Right. And, 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 you know, at times disagreement is good. Have you learned a lot from the, the, the employment centers that you've set up on your sites and stuff as far as hiring? I mean, for instance, you know, you have construction workers and stuff that yeah. you hire. So I assume that that experience doing these off-site employment things have helped you in that process. I yes. Think. And we've encouraged all of our subsidiaries and, and our main divisions to to network with the Skyland Workforce Center. Mm-hmm. And we have hired. And in fact, probably the best feeder we've had of individuals is through our summer youth employment program. Yeah. I can't tell you how many people got a summer job in high school, went off to college. We didn't hear from them for four or five years. They circled back around because they liked their experience or they felt comfortable here and and contacted us about a job. And we, we said, absolutely, brought them on board. And, and they've been here now 15, 20 years. So that's great. Yeah. That's great. So in development projects you manage, what are the best ways to mitigate risk in your opinion? You know, we spend an inordinate amount of time. In fact, some of the younger people come on board said, how many ways can you discuss a toilet seat? I mean, <laughs> but we, we're, we're actually pretty boring people. Um, but we spend a lot of time, a lot of time trying to think through everything. And we've made tons of mistakes. Don't get me wrong. And, and that's the worst part, right? When you build something and then you own it forever, so to speak, you live with those mistakes. And we've got plenty of them. And I'm glad you haven't asked about any of them. But so we spend a lot of time kind of in the R&D side. But if you're kind of a geek about, about you know, Legos and building blocks and building buildings, you, you actually kind of get excited about it. Sure. You know, especially on the sustainability side. Because we've also learned that, that not every new contraption that comes along makes sense or is going to last. And so... We, we also need some level of, of caution otherwise. So you have contingency planning. Yeah. And I think that we are not hasty, but reasonably quick to recognize when we've made a mistake. The, the, uh, right up the street, the Collective Park Chelsea, the front doors were not of the quality and the installation was not. We ended up closing that entrance down for two months spent well over $300,000 and put a brand new entrance in. Wow. And the, the entrance was only two years old. But we said, you know what? We're here for the long term and we didn't do it right and we need to admit it and move on. So let's shift to your personal life. What are your life priorities among family work and giving back, Chris? Well, you know, what's excited me is the fact that I have four kids and the oldest is a vet and the youngest is 16. So he's, he's just a junior in the throats of figuring out where he wants to go to college. And, but all of them have gotten involved in, in some aspect of, of the sort of community work that we've done. My wife, two days a week, is out at the ARC. Really? Uh, volunteering, yeah. And she did it all through the pandemic. The, the ARC really became, 
you know, the acronym Town, Town Hall Recreation Center. Center. Yep. Thank you. And we really kind of stepped up the town center piece of that acronym in that we became a location for shots for the Moderna shot all through the pandemic. We started to uh, give out groceries two days a week all through the pandemic and continuing today. So it really has become a, a center that has been able to fill a serious need during this pandemic. And so, so anyway, really loves the, the arc and has been very actively involved. But once the pandemic hit, she jumped in and started going over two days a week. And your yeah. children have been involved? Yeah, in well, they, 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 on days off or, or when it works on their, and they're not in school, uh, they'll come with Lisa and volunteer oh, too. Great. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So, and then work is obviously big for you and, and family. That's, that's great. So what you, you asked me not to talk about losses and wins, et cetera, but let's talk, I mean, wins, I mean, you've cited so many great things that you've done for the city. So I have to imagine that either the Skyland project and, the, and what you've done there and, and or the ARC are probably the biggest wins. Am, am I right with that? Or is there oh, something I, I, else? Yeah. No, no, I would think, I think that, that, that the ARC uh, would be at the top of the list. Yeah. And, and certainly Canal Park is, is near the top and, and the Skyland Workforce Center and some of the others. But yeah. yeah. So what's the most surprising thing that's happened to you in your career? I mean, what, what's something that just happened to you that just, I cannot believe this happened? <laughs> well, that's a tough one. I, I, you know, gosh, the fact 53 years later, we're here talking about the company. You know, when you when you fresh out of college, you don't think, okay, am I going to be here 45 years from now? And so I, I think that it's neat to think that the company has been able to not only survive but even thrive through a lot of ups and downs in the in the um, economic climate even even through this pandemic and here we are and we're still closing on sites and we still got that's awesome we got five buildings in design so what advice would you give your 25 year old self? oh god jeez you you know i i I, my dad was a, a depression era baby and so he was extremely conservative and he needed to be. He, 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 his dad died at a red, relatively young age. And so he, 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 he got a great education and never complained and was very happy, but he came from modest means. And so, and I think that, that there, there were occasions where I think I, I didn't go with my gut, you know, my gut said I should do this, but I think now, I'm not criticizing myself, but because I think being conservative also is another reason why we're here 53 years later. But there were occasions where probably I should have maybe gave a, a broader look at something. But other than that, I don't know. I, you know, I, th- I think things have worked out pretty yeah, well for you. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Give a pat on the back. Yeah. So if you could post a statement on a billboard in the Capitol Beltway oh, for millions to see. What would it say, Chris? If you know anything about us, we're, we're not about billboards. So I would love to see a billboard on the Capitol Beltway that had the ARC campus on it. There you go. And just make sure people know that this wonderful facility is down in uh, 
Southeast Washington. Well, I when I met you, and I, I have to say this, this was the more, one of the more powerful experiences in my career mm-hmm. to see that property, meet you, and to have that tour with the ULI group that day. It was just it was it went to my soul. Okay. So I want to thank you for you know devoting the time and energy to put that project together in that part of the city. And I'm hoping that other other cities around the country will be able to, to replicate that in, mm-hmm. in their environments. That's all I can say about it. And I've actually taken the time, and I'm going to say this, to at the ULI fall meeting, not this last fall meeting, but the one before that, where I brought a group of people down to tour mm-hmm. the ark because I mm-hmm. thought it was I felt yeah. it was that important yeah. to do. Yeah. So I thank you again, and I thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Enjoy it. Okay, Jeff. Thank you. Have a great day. So we just listened to the interview with Chris Smith of W.C. Smith Company. Very interesting conversation with Chris. Lengthy, but fascinating about his history and his company's history over uh, 53 years in Washington. And as I do every for my uh, all my podcasts, uh, I bring on my cohort, Colin Madden. Colin. Good morning. And uh Hello to all the listeners. I thought this was another pretty inspirational podcast to listen to. And you sometimes don't think that people like Chris exist out there. And then just hearing his story in the past 40-ish years of his his work in DC, it's it's just great to know that there are people like Chris giving back to the cities, helping communities grow and get out of kind of the, the traps sometimes they fall into. So hearing this was just a great reminder that there's still like a lot of great, great people in the community, in the real estate community that are really helping uh, build DC, build build communities, build uh, great great projects for, for the people and the citizens. Chatting with you offline, John, I know you have high praise for Chris, and I know you've talked to some of his partners who also have equally high praise. I just wanted to give you the opportunity to, uh, from your perspective, what do you think the impact of his work is on DC and how some of his projects might have convinced others to do, to do similar things in the city? Thanks, Colin. Well, yes, Chris, isn't it? an extraordinary human being. That's all I'll say. And my longtime friend and business uh, client, Gary Rappaport, who I had breakfast with last Friday, is a partner with Chris on two projects, two large projects in the district. One is Skyland, which is a project that's been underway now, well, been working on for 20 years for Gary about 15 for Chris. Chris is developing a apartments there and Gary's doing a large retail setup. And this is a large mixed-use project in Southeast Washington that's been in the works since about 2000 or so. And the other project is a VEC on H Street, which is a large mixed-use project of a former CBS anchored shopping center that Gary, or actually Rite Aid anchored center on H Street Northeast that he tore down about six years ago. And then they started a mixed-use development, which is now, I think, 10 stories with retail on the first two floors, residential on the, in a Class A project on top. So that project is a complete turnaround. But what Gary says about Chris is he said, Chris is the best partner he has ever had. And Gary's has over 400 investment partners and has had institutional partners. And the reason Chris is his favorite partner is that Chris gives back to the community like no one else he's ever known. And that's quite a testimony. Chris, and we talk about it, his 
his summer employment program, his the Skyland employment setup that they that he and Gary set up. Just amazing give backs to the community. But the largest, of course, is their mixed use development of nonprofits in Southeast called The Ark, which is adjacent to the village at Parklands, which is the project we talk about at length. So, and I've toured the, the Ark three times now, and I've actually taken groups down there, both national ULI groups as well as my local mentor groups there annually for three or four years in a row for to give time and energy into helping that set up. But it's a state-of-the-art facility with all these different nonprofits. And we talked about, I'll have all these on the show notes, but it's a it's just a spectacular property. And I encourage all the listeners, if they ever have a chance to, to go down and visit this, to do it. And, they, and they're welcome. They'd welcome any visitor to come. And particularly fascinating was the Frederick Douglass Mm-hmm. Anomatron, which mm-hmm. just for children of three to a hundred is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Just fascinating. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I was looking at it in preparation for this discussion. Sometimes I just check out the Google reviews of, of projects and you know, you can never really trust the Google review just because some people have petty, petty issues with it. But this one had, you know, close to five stars and WC Smith on their website. I think their motto is enhancing DC lifestyle and forming lasting relationships. And it, it doesn't seem like that's just like a PR motto. It's based on the Google reviews. It, it seems like everyone in the community really loves this, loves the arc and they're proud of it. And I think when someone is proud of something in the community, they've really achieved that, that enhancement of DC lifestyle and the forming of the life long, the forming of the lasting relationships. So it's great to see that he, he helped developed this project and then the community's really embraced it and has gotten to the point where they're, they're proud that they get to live in an area that has some, this type of offer, offering. So it's just great to see that it's, it's not all, all marketing. It's, it's really just a project that has been transformational for, for these communities and they, they fully have embraced it. Kind of pivoting to some other aspect of the conversation, he goes into the Topa laws and how that had a large impact on the, the business strategy of the WC Smith. Can you explain this in a little more detail for the listeners who may, may not have any familiarity with Topa sure. Laws? Sure. In the District of Columbia, the city council of the, of the city back, I believe, in the 1960s, late 1960s, actually the home rule started in the 1960s in, in D.C. Prior to that, Congress ran the district government. So that they basically formed the district government at that time. The Topa Law was one of the early legislations. It's the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act is what it's called formally. And it was what it allows for is the tenants of an apartment building upon the sale of a building. Well, not the sale, the contract. So purchase and sale agreement is signed by the, the seller and the buyer. And then the tenants then have a one-year period from that, the date of that contract to decide whether they want to buy the property, uh, basically exercise an option to purchase, purchase price that's on that contract. Law firms sprung up, or lawyers sprung up during the early day, earlier days, actually. And actually, what Chris said, it, it took a little bit longer than just immediately. 
But back in the 1980s, when the capital markets got a little bit more uh, aggressive, then the TOPA legislation really kicked in for a lot of people to be able to take advantage of that opportunity to buy the, buy the real estate. Mm-hmm. So the, they organized the tenants in several properties and acquired the property that for the tenants and either converted them into condominiums or they hired new management companies to manage the properties for themselves mm-hmm. as, or converted to co-ops sometimes. That was another mm-hmm. opportunity to do that. But So that law has been, in, from an investor standpoint, has been a restriction as far as investing for some people mm-hmm. because they have to wait a year to close. And the capital markets don't like to wait years for <laughs> things to happen, <laughs> right. typically. So you have to more or less tell a lender, I'm sorry, we're not going to close for a year. So mm-hmm. a lot, you know, a lot of the institutions in the city understand that. And if you have an ongoing relationship, if you're an owner, if you're uh, an investor, the banks and invest and, and institutions realize that and they say, well, okay, come to us when you're close and you've got your tenants on board. Now, mm-hmm. oftentimes you negotiate with the tenants as a buyer and accommodate whatever they want to give them a waiver of that, um, right. that option mm-hmm. so that they can close. And so that's quite often a negotiation. Even during the, the due diligence period, mm-hmm. once the property is uh, under letter of intent before the contract is signed, mm-hmm. buyers will go and meet with tenants individually sometimes and get them to agree not to to exercise the option to purchase. It's an extra layer of due diligence that buyers need to do in the city. Right. How, how many other cities have this type of law? Is it fairly unique? I haven't it? done the research to know that, Colin, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but I believe there, that New York City has its rent control law. And so if you've owned a property a long period of time, they can't increase the rent. So there's a cap on that. And the district has a, a rent control law too. So in it on top of Topa, but I'm just not aware of other cities that have anything quite like this. Right, that you wait a year to close. Mm-hmm. Now there might be another. There are other restrictions people stack on it, but nothing quite like this. Right. I don't know where this whole thought process came from, so I don't know the total history of who came up with the idea and and why they thought it was important to do it at the time. Right. Do you think it's something uh, DC will have in law for uh, the next few decades, or is there discussion about amending this? You know, the the demographics and the population of the city has evolved over the last mm-hmm. 10, 15 years quite a bit. As Chris cited, the population went from 560,000 to 689,000 in the last census. Mm-hmm. That's quite a growth. That's, right. that's 20% almost. That's mm-hmm. pretty amazing. <laughs> if you look at the demographics of that, it's a lot younger, and the, the minority population actually, on a percentage basis, in, decreased. So the question is, what does the what does the new population think right. about that, and what influence do they have, and what's the ratio of the amount of the city that are actually tenants as opposed to owners? Because mm-hmm. that's really what impacts it. That's where the votes would come from. Mm-hmm. So if some new city council member came in and said, I think we should overturn this law. I think there'd be a lot of pushback with it, with the longtime residents in the city. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I wanted to get back to Chris and he seems to be a developer and builder of projects in areas that no one has basically ever touched before. I don't want to call it a contrarian investment thesis, but he, he does seem to go outside the norms of where people are investing their money. And I think I think the townhomes in Oxen Oxen Hill, is it? Yes. Oxen, yeah. Oxen Creek, where no one really believed he could get the prices he got. Where where do you think this kind of courage to invest where no one has invested before comes from? Do you think it's just he sees deep, deep value in an otherwise discounted area or or he just sees a lot of synergies between his ability to to recreate communities and improve upon create communities, but also at the same time playing kind of like a long-term play of developing the value of those areas. Chris has a unique view. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it comes from his 47 years of doing this in markets that nobody else were playing in. He understands the psyche of tenants and owners in parts of the city that no one else really had played in. Mm-hmm. Ward 8, Ward 7, and Ward 8, and Ward 5, mm-hmm. which is the eastern half of the city. He's met enough people. He's seen enough property owners, you know, single family and multifamily and tenants. Mm-hmm. He's gotten feedback from his employees to say, well, there is there's intrinsic value here. Yeah. We think we should try to mine that intrinsic value. Why not? It's 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 almost like it's ours to have because we have the good relationships in the city, mm-hmm. we're, and it's a win-win for everybody if we can create value there. And boy, oh boy, the story that they talk about the the chairman of of Freddie of Fannie Mae he quotes Frederick mm-hmm. Rains the story of building these townhouses and selling them from ninety nine to one hundred and forty thousand, and then a few years later they. The resales are over three hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's an impressive story, <laughs> right? Very yeah. impressive. Yeah, especially since everyone doubted, even internally, some people were doubting. Doubting, absolutely. And it's it's really his heritage, mm-hmm. his father, and his belief in parts of the city that no one else really understood or mm-hmm. or was willing to to, to go in, and it's just. It goes back prior to institutional investment in the city at all. I mean, the 1960s, this was a sleepy town. It goes back to then. And they were always coming at it from the property management perspective, which is a unique perspective as well. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't from the capital markets investment standpoint. Mm-hmm. So that gives another different twist to, to what makes their company unique in, in my mind. I don't know anyone quite like them right. in the city. Yeah, but I'm glad there is someone like them in the city. I think all the projects they've they've done and what I've looked into is just really incredible, and hope hope it encourages other people to to kind of invest and build where no one's built before. Because I think the net effect is is so great for the entire city and everyone, all its citizens. You know um, what, what? What's also interesting, Colin, is the amount the, the tenure of all the people that work there, mm-hmm. and. What that tells me, it's a very strong culture internally mm-hmm. because you could, if you were a smart person working there, you could look around and say, wow, why should, why should I let this group benefit from this interesting thought process? I can go out on my own and compete and do my own thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's a testimony to Chris to be able to retain his talent right. and not lose it to, to, to people go out and do 
their own thing. They want to stay there and help him grow because they like, they enjoy working for him and, and helping mm-hmm. build that enterprise. So yeah. that's another interesting story because a lot of firms start from people just breaking off either with their own entrepreneurial bent yeah. or seeing opportunities that, that, that they might be missing. Right. These people missing. So yeah. I thought that was interesting as well. Yeah, definitely. That's, uh, that's kind of all the, the topics I wanted to hit with you. Is there anything you wanted to, to bring up or anything I missed? No, I, I, I do want to, once again, and I've said it maybe three times now, but I think that for the listeners, if you ever have an opportunity to go down to Southeast Washington to see the ARC, T-H-E-A-R-C dot org is the website. Uh, the property is located near the Southern Avenue Metro stop in on the Green Line. It's a 16-acre site now that has three buildings that will have four coming. Apparently, the fourth one will be under construction. I would go down and tour it if you have an opportunity. Walk around and see what's going on on typically almost any day because there's a medical the children's hospital has a facility in one building that it's always crowded there, almost 24-7. So it's, it's, it's services to the most challenged part of the city. And it's just amazing what, what, what happens there. It's, it's magic. That's all I can say. It makes me emotional to talk about it even. It's, it's amazing. So I will say that that's, that's how I met Chris. And that's what impressed me the most about him is his willingness to put the time and energy into something that is very complicated to, to put together. Mm-hmm. And he he personally got very little personal benefit of it, but as he said, it was the biggest win of his career. So, pretty big, and that tells you a lot about the guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, very good episode. I really enjoyed it. And Colin, thanks again for your uh, commentary. Mm-hmm. And uh, listeners, uh, we will be back uh, in two weeks. And I have a very special pair of guests on the next episode, Bill and Paul Collins, who lead the uh, number one team in office building sales in the city for Cushman and Wakefield. They have some very interesting uh, commentary, which I think you'll enjoy. So thank you again for listening to Icons of DCA Real Estate.